Haven't you ever wondered what mysteries lie beneath our feet? What treasures might unlock long buried secrets? With the 400th anniversary of Mayflower's arrival in New England in 1620, just on the horizon, the interwoven team wanted to find out what Plymouth soils had to offer. Now, archeologists are certainly not treasure hunters, but they are definitely problem solvers. And Dr. David Landon and his team from the University of Massachusetts Andrew Fisk Memorial Center for Archeology span are uncovering exciting new evidence about the earliest political, economic, and social encounters between colonial and indigenous peoples that have been buried in the ground for four centuries. So the first question, right off the bat, that I think our visitors are going to want to know. You are the Associate Director of the Fisk Center for Archaeological Research at UMass Boston, mm -hmm. and your specialty is historical archaeology. So what is historical archaeology, and how is it different from other types of archaeology? Well, that's a good question. And um, actually, something that Plymouth Plantation played a big role in, because the whole kind of notion of, of a field or a specialty called historical archaeology kind of was partially born here at Plymouth Plantation. Um, and, and the way I describe it in the simplest sentence is that we work kind of at the margin between history and archaeology. So that means in a lot of instances working on what in kind of an archaeologist term are the most recent sites. Um, and we try and use kind of the, the dual perspective of historical research to inform the work and also the, the material record. And um, in North America, in practical terms, um, this divides us from people who are interested in like ancient Mesoamerica or the Inca civilization in South America. Um, and also, for the most part, people who are studying ancient native peoples in North America generally think of themselves as a kind of a, a different specialty. Um, some of that's breaking down a little bit these days, um, especially as, um, you know, kind of in, in archaeology, this has actually kind of been referred to as, as trying to kind of break the margin between history and prehistory in a sense, to dissolve that as a kind of conceptual barrier and recognize kind of long-term cultural continuity and the presence of people in, in places and things like that. Um, but in practical terms, it also means that we're here in Plymouth digging for, um, you know, the early 17th century settlement here um, and kind of trying to mix our archaeology with the historical research that's been done on that period. So when you say recent, it's all relative. So recent means 400 years ago rather than, say, 1986. Yeah, you know, for an archaeologist, 400 years ago is not very... That's recent, okay? <laughs> so, so, and, you know, if you think of the history of Plymouth itself, you know, there's, there's sites all around Plymouth Bay that are 8,000 years old. Mm -hmm. So the last 400 years, um, yeah, that's, that's the recent stuff. Um, but... There are quite literally now um, historical archaeologists who are working kind of closer and closer to the present. So um, literally now the, the first kind of sites um, of America's nuclear power industry 
are actually reaching the age where they're considered to be historical properties. Um, so people are starting to kind of upset, assess and determine what should be preserved about, you know, sites from the 1930s and 1940s where America's working on developing nuclear power technology and, and ultimately nuclear, nuclear weapons. Um, it's hard to think of that as very old at this point, but it's now gotten to the point where it's, it's um, kind of considered historical in, in kind of the technical terms for preservation. So what's the benchmark year when, when do you become a historic site? Is it you have to be 100 years old or 50 years old? Is there a, a general industry benchmark for that? The, the, um, the, the way that um, the discipline and people who work as archaeologists are describing it now is more in thematic terms. Hmm. So, so we're, we're um, broadly would think of this as kind of the archaeology of the emergence of the modern world. Um, and, and kind of the modern world system. And some of the historic processes that underlie that um, to try and actually use archaeology to trace back some of the, the roots of the processes that led us to our modern world. So, so if we think of that in the most recent terms, you know, industrial revolution, industrialization as like a modern world process, the process of urbanization, um, as we work back towards someplace like Plymouth, the, the process of like colonization and European expansionism. Um, and sometimes that's also, you know, aspects of that had really negative consequences for some of the people that Europeans encountered. So, you know, there's lots of archaeologists who really kind of take a very critical perspective to the archaeology of the African diaspora. Um, and the slave trade and the kind of effects of European expansion and imperialism on indigenous people around the globe. Um, so, so if you think of that thematically, um, the timing of, of when things like that take place in different parts of the world and, and aspects of that are quite varied, um, but increasingly that's kind of, it's kind of that thematic glue that's holding this together as a field. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about historical archaeology. You mentioned that Plymouth Plantation has played a role in the development of historical archaeology as a field. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So, so um, this is a relatively new field of specialty. Um, and one of the kind of practitioners that helped kind of define this as a field was um, James Dietz, who worked for a long time at Plymouth Plantation. He was um, brought into Plymouth Plantation in part because he had been working on contact period sites, which is kind of the technical and not very interesting sounding name that archeologists use for for um, kind of native or indigenous sites um, from time periods when they were in contact with Europeans. So the, the contact period. Um, he had worked on contact period sites, so kind of historic native communities and, and some of the effects of um, 
you know, trade and interaction with Europeans. And so was hired by Harry Hornblower to come to Plymouth Plantation and help work on um, the kind of first reconstruction of what's now the um, native Wampanoag home site. And that then quickly followed into some of Hornblower's interests in the actual um, houses and sites of the um, pilgrims and their descendants, which, which Hornblower had been actively kind of investigating um, since before World War II as, as, a, as a boy, was very interested in this and excavating sites, including some that are you know right here in Plymouth. And Dietz really got very engaged in that and wrote what is still a kind of seminal work that helped establish the field of historical archaeology um, called In Small Things Forgotten, still in print after all these years, um, based largely on his analysis and work at Plymouth Plantation and sites of the Plymouth Colony. And he really tried to propose a very kind of broad view of, of the way kind of material culture was linked to changing kind of worldviews um, as people came out of the Middle Ages and um, into the 17th and 18th century and kind of reorganized their material life in new ways around them, um, what Dietz, Dietz called at the time the Georgian order. Um, and you know, decades later, the main aspects of his thesis are still holding up pretty well <laughs> and are still actually, you know, the, the source of a lot of um, continuing research have really spawned a lot of kind of, of um, thought and consideration of, of kind of broad processes of culture change that are reflected in a wide array of kind of material objects from people's houses to the way that they lay out the landscape around the house, the material objects that fill the house, the, the pots and the pans and the, the food that is in the kitchen and, and, and the way that some of those things actually link together into com complex suites of kind of a culture, a material culture for a time period. Um, that broadly reflects aspects of kind of cultural change through time. And what is one of the best aspects of, of Dietz's legacy here at the museum is that guests who come to visit us can see the outcome of all of his work in the way the houses are, as you say, the houses are constructed, the way they're laid out, the way the gardens are laid out, all reflect the research that he did with his colleagues and his students and with Harry Hornblower over decades. Yeah, and you know, it still, it still remains a, um, a really daunting task as an archaeologist to try and make the leap from, you know, excavated material at a site to like, oh, now we're actually going to make the house and we're going to furnish it and we're going to do the garden. So then it's like, um, I remain in awe of a lot of that work because what I feel like when I try and imagine that is I feel like I'm, I'm really quickly pointed out to all the holes in my own understanding of these things. Um, so it's, so it's a really, it's a really quite an accomplishment. Um, you know, some, some of it is very um, specific and pragmatic. So, 
the notion of you know constructing buildings early 17th century houses without foundations by putting kind of posts in the ground what's now called earth fast construction that was something deeps recognized as a construction method here that again has really spawned a lot of research across archaeological sites and and also has pretty much has pretty directly informed some of the reconstructions here at the village and it's so wonderful that it now comes full, full circle as we repair and restore the homes that were built with this in the style that Dietz discovered or uncovered. We're finding that the old homes are behaving exactly the way the archaeological record indicated that they might. So we found that we've been able to bring that research full circle, which is a rare thing. You don't often get to see that full full causality um, from the original archeological research to building the homes through many phases of construction to figure out exactly the right way and the right footprint to then have the houses uh, sort of degrade over time and leave the same footprint that we see in the archeological record. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, well, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're approaching the point where lots of parts of this museum are in themselves gonna be now a historic artifact, so. So We're just going to confuse archaeologists 100 years down the line of what happened here at Plymouth Plantation? <laughs> what on earth was going on? You know, th this, is, um, this, is, um, this is actually a, you know, there's practical aspects of this too. So, for instance, at the Wampanoag home site, um, when they're making modern tools today, it becomes one of the questions. So do we actually use local stone or... Um, is that possible that this is actually going to be confused as part of a site if we actually are using local materials? So, so sometimes um, I think their practice there is actually to try and use non-local materials mostly so that if they are making stone tools there, there's no way that any of the chipping debris that's left behind would actually be confused with an ancient archaeological site sure. with these processes that are being you know, replicated and continued and you know, reused and used again today at the site. I just love the idea that our museum gets to be a, a lab space in many ways. It's a public history laboratory where you get to bring different disciplines together and say, let's build it and live in it and see what happens as a result because you, you can't necessarily do that in all disciplines and all fields. And, and uh, for archaeologists, you know, the, the, the aspect of that for archaeologists, so... so um, you know, lots of people on the outside know something about Plymouth Plantation, Plymouth Plantation Museum, but archaeologists, all the archaeologists know Plymouth Plantation. And I don't think that's actually well known amongst the museum staff here, like kind of the, the understanding that archaeologists have of this. So, so it makes it easy for me to recruit students to come here because like, oh, we're going to go work at Plymouth Plantation. And for students who know archaeology, um, or are you know learning archaeology? They understand. They a lot of them understand that. They they get that and get get the place of the museum in the kind of broader formation of the the whole field that we're engaged in. So you bring students here to the museum every summer for a field school uh, that's called Project Four Hundred, and it is a collaboration between your university, the University of Massachusetts Boston, Fisk Center for Archaeological Research and Plymouth Plantation and the town of Plymouth. Um, 
For our listeners, can you talk a little bit about what a field school is and what purpose it serves in a young archaeologist's education, and then also sort of about the genesis of Project 400? So a field school is, well, as I tell the students, this is my favorite class to teach um, because we're literally doing an outdoor multi-week class doing an archaeological excavation and teaching the students who participate um, you know the, the methods and practices and interpretation and the way that archaeological excavation takes place and for students who are interested in archaeology it's kind of widely understood in the field that like the first field school is kind of a make or break so people either participate and then are hooked for life or participate and are like, yeah, I tried that out and, and um, yeah, maybe not so much. Um, a lot of times it's a self-selection process of like, who's going to sign up to do six weeks of working outside in the summer? There's kind of a, doing an archaeology dig. It's kind of a self-selection process. So a lot of times the students who are ready to kind of take that step already envision this as a possibility. And a lot of times then, um, the field school experience becomes like part of like, oh my gosh, I got it, this, I have to be able to keep doing this. Um, so it's, it's, it really can be a formative experience for the students. We have a really mixed group of people that come and join in. So we have lots of graduate students who are participating, some of them who are working on on uh, master's projects that are directly come out of the research. Um, some are doing this for a class and working on other projects. We have undergraduates come from a, um, a bunch of universities. It's not just from UMass Boston. So students come from other universities in part because they're like, you know, this, this year in particular, like every, everyone who contacted me from another university was like, I think I wanna be a historical archeologist. So I wanna come to the field school to like see if that's actually the case. So it's hard to turn those students away because it's like, well, you know, okay, come see if you want to be a historical archaeologist. You're coming to the right place. It's a road test for your dream job. <laughs> a, a road test. Is this my dream job or not? Um, this year, even there were a couple of high school students who co contacted me saying, hey, you know, I think I want to be an archaeologist. Like, can I come? I was like, well, come on down, you know, come for a week and see if you, see if you want to, um, <laughs> how this matches up with your kind of, vision of it in a certain sense. So that's always a fun aspect of it. And then, um, you know, we're, we're also working on this, like also very much, um, it's an interesting class because it's not a normal class in the sense that, that we have kind of, you know, exercises, that it's kind of, um, you know, well, being outdoors is unusual in and of itself. But, but um, this is also like a very real project that we're engaged in. So, so we really try and, and get the students to really step up to like full-fledged kind of intellectual and personal engagement in the project because we are doing this with, with um, the town of Plymouth. The town of Plymouth has really specific interest in this. You know, they're, they're coming into the 400th anniversary year in 2020. So the, it's the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower, 1620 to 2020. 
Um, they have kind of heritage tourism interest in this. They want to promote the town of Plymouth. They love the idea that we could learn something new and create some excitement around the archaeology. Um, so the town's been a real supporter and, and given us a lot of access. Mostly where we've been digging has been on town property um, and giving us a lot of access and support. You know, Obviously, we're working on this with Plymouth Plantation and they have a pretty direct stake as well. You know, they recreate this history in minute living detail. So, so they're very interested in the results of the archaeology because it potentially speaks to some of very directly to some of the things they're doing. Um, and also, you know, it it allows the whole idea of kind of like new research that there still are new things that we can learn about this time period. It's hard to imagine like we can still learn something new about like the Pilgrim era and their, the Plymouth colony. It seems like that should all be known at this point, but that's kind of, I guess, a public perception. And for professionals, there's an understanding that there's still more to learn. And we're also working on this a lot with um, very specific descendant communities who have have like a direct stake in the history and the way it's presented. So we've been working very closely with the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Lots of members of the Mashpee tribe kind of can directly trace their lineage and genealogy to native people who were, you know, involved in this history. So they have a very kind of close um, stake in, in, in the way that this history gets interpreted and presented. And um, there are also lots of, of uh, pilgrim descent organizations who also feel like they have a real stake in the way this history is presented. And I've never worked in any place quite like Plymouth where so many people seem to have like, hey, my great, great grandmother, you know, kind of story about like establishing their connection to aspects of this history. So it, it's, um, it's been an interesting aspect of the kind of public aspect of the project. When you were originally conceiving of this project, probably almost a decade ago, what was your original question or goal for this dig? What were you hoping, hoping to look for or hoping to find? You know, it, it's, it's interesting because, um, because my motivations for this were not so much the usual academic motivations of like, oh, I have a question about that time period that I want to answer. I've worked on lots of different time periods. Um, and I guess, you know, in the grand scheme of archaeology, it's all been pretty narrow. But for historical archaeologists, I've been jump, jumping around to a variety of different topics, um, working on industrial sites, working on 17th century colonial sites, everything in between. Um, lots of, some urban archeology span thrown in there. I'm an animal bone specialist, so I write and work a lot about um, how we analyze and learn something about the diet and people's hunting and fishing and animal raising practices from bones and teeth that we find at sites. Um, but the, in the lead up to, the, to this project, what I was really interested in was I was really interested in the opportunity to, to really do a public archaeology project in the sense of um, 
I recognized that the 400th anniversary was going to draw a lot of attention to this history. Um, and it just seemed like a really unique opportunity to kind of revisit it and use that interest as a launching point to try and kind of get our voice into the story about how some of this history gets reinterpreted, re represented, and kind of reconsidered alongside this milestone of this, of, of this 400th anniversary. And, you know, that, that aspect to me seemed really the most intriguing because you know, a lot of times archaeologists, you know, there's this perception of archaeology as being very kind of ivory tower, the archaeologists working on their own, you know, some people see it as Indiana Jones, or some people see it as, you know, the, the, the solitary scholar sitting in the attic filled with all the broken pieces of pottery and spending their life, you know, counting and drawing each little broken shirt. And, and there's aspects of that, but, you know, the, the public is really interested in this and trying to find ways to use that kind of public enthusiasm to make a project bigger than just the academic kind of parts of it. That was really what, what drew me to this. So the dig, you're going into your seventh year, I believe, at this point. Um, so what has changed in the last seven years in terms of going back to sort of your original vision and your original idea about what this project could be? What, if anything, has changed? The phone it rings in the police station less often when we start digging than it did seven years ago. So... When we first showed up in Plymouth and we started digging on town property, um, you know, one of the areas where we've been working quite a bit is along the um, margins and just outside of one of Plymouth's kind of most iconic and important historic cemeteries. And the first time people show up with shovels and are standing at the edge of the cemetery, everybody kind of freaks out. We probably should have anticipated that, um, but you know, uh, since we were working with the town, the town all knew what we were doing, and and as they said later, it's a good thing we knew what you're doing because as soon as you started working, the phone started ringing in the police station, like there's people with shovels at the edge of the cemetery. So, so um, that that's been a really interesting process of um, and and really reflected like uh, how many people in the public felt like they had kind of a connection to this history. So this, 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 this burial hill, the, this cemetery is really kind of a, a very sacred spot for a lot of people in the town. And it took us a while to kind of earn the town's trust to be able to work along the margins of the cemetery. Um, and, and that's one of the things that's changed. We also, you know, it, when we started this, um, there was no... We didn't find something right away. We we didn't have we didn't have a dramatic success year one or year two or year three. We we started learning a lot about the history of um, downtown Plymouth, and we started learning a lot about nineteenth century landfilling and the industrial uses of the town brook, um, and 
the schools that gave School Street its name in Plymouth, and a whole variety of kind of other topics that really, um, essentially we kind of had to understand the formation of the town through time to be able to kind of work back and re-envision what that older landscape was like and also to find areas in the downtown where we could find some remnants of the earlier settlement preserved. Mm -hmm. And that's been, that's been one of the biggest challenges. So this is an urban archaeology project. We're digging in the downtown, and that is um, a really kind of technical and challenging kind of archaeology where it's not clear you know, how much we can find that's actually preserved of the earliest settlement because the town has continued to build, to, you know, grow up and change on top of it. Um, and the fact that we haven't been able to recover parts of the early settlement and evidence of the Wampanoag village of Patuxet um, that hasn't been destroyed by all of that development, that's been the major accomplishment of the project. What was one of the biggest surprises you've had during this project, either an individual finding or series of findings or new insights that you weren't anticipating or new uh, sort of partnerships and research opportunities coming out? One of, the, one of the real surprises and something that's been really interesting to learn about is... Um, one of the times that the town's landscape was restructured quite dramatically was in the lead up to the 300th anniversary. And as archaeologists, as we start to dig in some of the town properties, some of the areas where the restructuring really took place was on, on uh, parts of the town property. So the, the, um, evidence of like the massive restructuring of the landscape in the early 20th century in preparation for the 300th was one of the big surprises. And in, in simpler terms, this looks like a small town, but the archaeology doesn't look like a small town. The archaeology looks like as a, you know, something we'd really think of as like urban archaeology. It looks much more like a city, digging in a city than digging in a small town. And parts of the landscape today that are most natural looking, a lot of those parts of the landscape are not natural at all. They're, they're actually very deliberate kind of human constructions of, of a quote, natural landscape. And that's really been an interesting, interesting thing to kind of recognize and understand. And, and it's a very interesting thing to try and interpret to the public. Mm. One of the most significant findings that we've been talking about here at Plymouth Plantation has been the presence of indigenous ceramics in colonial English dwelling sites. Um, can you talk a little bit about this find, these finds and what it means for you as an archaeologist, but also what it might mean for how we can understand how these two communities interacted? This was one of the ways, I guess this was one of the ways we really did have a big, a big question coming into the project. And 
that was one of the things that we wanted to kind of reconsider about some of the ar earlier archaeological work in Plymouth. So when Jim Dietz was digging colonial sites around Plymouth Bay, everywhere those excavations took place, there was native material recovered. So Wampanoag artifacts of different kinds, chipped stones, stone tools, um, Wampanoag pottery, Parts of this were found at, at every site. Now, at the time, at the time, the interpretation was that, oh, well, the English colonists liked the same sites that the Wampanoag liked, so the high spot next to the river, of course, they just settled on the same spot, so these native materials are the sign of an earlier Wampanoag habitation on the same site as the English house. So what that meant was if you view it that way, then you're not imagining that the English materials and artifacts that you're digging up and the native artifacts were necessarily in use at the same time period. You're kind of making the decision that, that one is a, that there are different time periods. And we really came into this wanting to test that and challenge that and see if that was actually a valid interpretation or if our archaeological work would make it look different. And our archaeological work does make that look very different. So in the preserved 17th century features that we're finding, um, we are actually finding you know, native artifacts in association with European artifacts that show that they were actually in use at the same time. Now, partially, this is a really like technical archaeological question because you know the the Plymouth settlement was built on top of the site of a native village, so we know this from the history, the village of Patuxet um, that had been hit by the epidemic. Um, so there was kind of a, an open native village space, open because people had died or moved moved away. Um, and we know that the Plymouth settlement settled on top of that village. So there's every reason to expect that everywhere we dig, we're going to find native material from the village of Patuxet. And everywhere in Plymouth we dig, we find native Wampanoag artifacts from the village of Patuxet. So it really becomes a real technical question of like, can we tell which of those artifacts are actually in an archaeological context with 17th century material that shows that they were in use at the same time period, and which of those artifacts legitimately seem to be from the native village of Patuxet. Um, and therefore predate the arrival of Mayflower and, in 1620. And therefore, therefore predate the arrival of Mayflower. And we've, and that that thinking and the ability to kind of like work through some of the technical aspects of the way you differentiate those things is, is one of the ways archaeology has changed since Dietz's work. So, so you know, the, our, our methods and our approaches have changed. So it, so it does represent kind of a, a, a more modern perspective on this. And, you know, as we start to recognize, you know, Wampanoag artifacts and native artifacts in association and, and use at the same time as some of the early European artifacts, 
it helps us bring native people back into the, back into the landscape back into focus that we we can we can see them by seeing their artifacts and bring them back into into the narrative and into the conversation what can listeners expect to see if they come and visit you in Plymouth over the summer while your field school students are um, doing this public archaeology project since we are working on public property and trying to do this with the town and and also very much as a interpretation as we're going um, we keep our site open while we're working and we allow people to come and kind of tour through and see what it is that we're that we're doing um, we try and structure that a little bit so that's kind of designate the students who are interested to rotate through as kind of our daily site interpreter so that some people and some of our students really like this aspect of it you know how do we present archaeology to the public and what do the public want to know and some of the students really get interested in and in trying to work on kind of the outreach and discussion with members of the public who want to kind of tour through and see what we're doing um, you'll see lots of sweaty and dirty people with their <laughs> with their uh, heads staring into holes in the ground with lots of head scratching and lots of obsession over is that very dark brown sandy soil or just dark brown sandy soil so um, you know our, our dig site is is equal parts kind of the work of digging and the kind of very careful and laborious process of like thinking about what we're digging up and characterizing all of our soils and trying to understand which artifacts actually belong together in association. There's a lot of kind of um, literally some head scratching sometimes going on. And as one of our visitors once described it, um, they got to come see a whole bunch of archeologists standing around, staring into a hole in the ground and talking about it for half an hour as we're all trying to figure out exactly what it is we're seeing uh, in, in this hole that we've dug in the ground. Um, and, um, you know, people are welcome to come and we'll be happy to kind of give people a tour and show them what it is that we're up to and, and some of the artifacts that we're finding and, and kind of how we're interpreting the site. Do you have a favorite question that you've been asked by a member of the public while you've been on this project? Um, my favorite question, you know, um, for archaeologists, um, for archaeologists, the, 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 the whole idea of like what questions that the public ask um, is actually kind of a running joke in archaeology because... Um, Certainly the first question we, we, out of a lot of people's ma mouth is about um, the tr our search for treasure, which um, we usually dis can dissuade them pretty quickly because we show them the broken potsherds and rusty nails that are our treasure. Um, and, you but know, certainly no Spanish doubloons. <laughs> no, no Spanish doubloons and... And, uh, you know, we get really excited by, you know, 
Um, if, if it has the right glaze on it, a small thumbnail piece of broken pottery is like the find of the day. So it can be the find of the day. So, so, um, so that's kind of, that's always kind of a funny aspect of it. And, um, um, you know, occasionally, you know, as people, I think the, I think the whole movement towards public archaeology in the United States has um, gotten the public a lot more interested in and given them a lot more understanding about like wh- the ways that archaeology goes on in their community. So literally one day a woman walked up to me at the at the site when we were just getting started and she said, oh, is that machine, are, are you currently undertaking a ground-penetrating radar survey of the site? And I was like, how in the world would someone know what a ground-penetrating radar machine was? And And of course... You know, this was somebody who had been to a lot of archaeological sites, was interested in it, and avidly followed, uh, uh, you know, the progress of archaeological archaeologists and their work, and and so knew that we could legitimately be doing a ground-penetrating radar survey, and of course that's what we were doing. So that one was a great question. Like, it kind of took me aback. Well, yes, yes we are. That's what we're doing, so... So, David, one last question. In addition to being a working field archaeologist and a scholar, you are also a teacher. So if we have any listeners who are thinking about a career in archaeology and historical archaeology or public archaeology, do you have one piece of advice that you would give them? Um, Don't forget you're putting your future in ruins. That's one of the archaeology jokes. <laughs> um, you know, um, people still, to a large extent, have the notion that you know archaeology, by definition, means like off to Egypt or off to Greece, and that is what archaeology is a lot of times in, in the public imagination, and. Most archaeologists in the United States work in the United States. And so there's actually a very kind of robust, there's a very robust um, professional archaeology field in the United States. Um, Archaeological sites are protected in the same way that natural resources are protected. And so there's actually kind of professional work for archaeologists to try and find and assess and preserve archaeological sites that are potentially going to be damaged by development. That's what most of the archaeologists in the United States actually do. Um, And so they get involved in in preservation and work on, you know, this process of of finding and and kind of assessing and interpreting sites. Um, So it means that there actually is a kind of viable career path for people who um, are interested in kind of linking together, linking together their interest in archaeology with interest in kind of um, site, site preservation. Dr. David Landon is Associate Director of the Andrew Fisk Memorial Center for Archaeological Research at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and one of the project directors for Project 400. David, thank you so much for taking time to be part of Interwoven. Thank you for having me. 
Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.